This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security. For April 10th, 2020. Apple sources personal protection equipment. More updates from issues with Zoom. Details around a successful phishing attack and information on how you can protect yourself. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you this week? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Kirk? I'm okay. You staying safe there in far off California? Uh, yeah. Not using Zoom, are you? <laughs> Definitely avoiding using Zoom. Yeah. Uh, okay. We'll we'll have some some uh, updates to the Zoom story uh, in a little while. I, obviously, the big news is the coronavirus and COVID nineteen, and we're not going to go into much about that, but. It's worth pointing out that Apple has launched an initiative to do two things. They're producing masks, and I think we'll link to a tweet from Tim Cook on the 5th of April where he says that uh, we've now sourced over 20 million masks through our supply chain, and they have also come up with instructions to make a face shield that they're going to be building and that anyone can build with 3D printers. I guess it's 3D printers for the bit that goes around the top of the head, and then you have to buy the plastic that, that goes in the front. Um, so they're working very hard, as he says, our design engineering operations and packaging teams are also working with suppliers to design, produce, and ship face shields for medical workers. So uh, kudos to Tim Cook and Apple for doing something uh, positive to help everyone here. Yeah, this is great. And there there have been a number of big companies that have been trying to contribute to these efforts to um, help to... Uh, create some much needed uh, personal protection equipment um, to protect healthcare workers in particular um, who are who are running out of this type of equipment um, just because of the high demand for it right now. I'm very happy that Apple is is uh, involved in this. A- Apple does uh, have a tendency to get involved in a lot of good humanitarian causes, so I'm I'm not surprised, but I'm I, I am definitely happy that uh, that they're working on this. I almost want to have a comedy section of these podcasts. I suggested to our producer earlier, if we had some Benny Hill music, um, we could run it when we have these really funny stories. The stories, it's like when you hear about them, you you, you do the face palm and how is this possible? Yeah. So we're linked to an article in the register. Boeing 787s must be turned off and on every 51 days to prevent misleading data being shown to pilots. Uh-huh. Yep. this is is one of those things where (laughs) the coding is so comically bad i mean because if this were really designed properly obviously this would not be the case um you you shouldn't have to (laughs) to reboot something every so often just to make sure that it's giving you accurate data that that sounds like a real problem with the the way something was designed but see this isn't the first one uh so the article says a previous software bug forced airlines to power down their 787s every 248 days for fear that electrical generators could shut down in flight and airbus suffers from similar issues with its a350 uh, a relatively recent but since patched bug forcing power cycles every 149 hours 
Yeah, you know, I feel like I I heard maybe an earlier version of this story because I, I, I it, this sounds so familiar to me, and maybe I was familiar with the other version where it was every two hundred and some days, and uh, and well, now they've reduced it to only fifty one days that you've got to reboot, so that's great, right? I mean, it's still sort of it's a little bit concerning because we're talking about airplanes here. Right. And that's, this is something that a lot of people just have probably mostly irrational fears about, uh, about flying. Um, supposedly it's much safer than, than drying statistically speaking. Uh, so, you know, but you hear things like this and you're just like, Oh, that doesn't sound good. Why is it? Why, why is that the case? Why are they using software that has known bugs like this that requires rebooting? And what if they forget to reboot? Then what? Then, then the pilots are going to be shown misleading data. So I sure hope that they follow their reboot schedules. What if they tell Siri to remind them in 51 days <laughs> and somehow the reminder gets deleted um, and they're in the air? Now, I guess the thing that surprises me the most is that they're these planes are never turned off and on. They're never rebooted. I guess in some cases they're flying 24 hours a day or they're flying and they're being serviced, et cetera. But most planes don't fly at night. It's only for long trips or red eyes that they fly at night. I guess that's not true for cargo planes. They, they probably are. But for passenger planes, they get to airports. I mean, I've been on planes. They pull into the gate and they turn them off. You hear the engines go off and you hear everything get quiet. But I guess there's still power going through the the avionics system. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? I mean, you don't necessarily always shut down a computer. Uh, I mean, a lot of people with their home computers just leave them on 24-7 so that, you know, it's convenient. You can walk up to it at any time and just tap a button on the keyboard and the screen comes on. Um, it's definitely faster than waiting for the boot process and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, maybe they're doing something like that here. I don't know. I'm, I'm not an aviator, so <laughs> I don't have any insights into this. Fortunately. So in other news, Facebook wanted NSO spyware to monitor users. This is according to claims from the NSO CEO. NSO is a, what would you call them? A white hat hacker, a surveillance vendor, the NSO group. Facebook wanted to buy their products to monitor users. I'm confused why they're already monitoring users, right? They're tracking everything users do. What more did they want here? Yeah. So what's, what's sort of odd about this is, well, of course, and, and we always talk about Facebook on the podcast and, and how it seems like they're always getting themselves in, into trouble over something privacy related. Right. Um, and so supposedly according to this, uh, this vice article, the CEO of NSO group says that in 2017, um, Facebook tried to buy, they say an Apple spying tool and uh, meaning a, a tool to spy on Apple users. Um, and they talk about uh, this Pegasus spyware that we've, uh, we've mentioned before in the past. Um, but essentially, um, the, according to the CEO, he claims that two Facebook representatives approached NSO Group in October 2017 and asked about purchasing the right to use certain capabilities of this Pegasus product um, that NSO Group has. And that software um, essentially was designed to allow companies to be able to remotely infect cell phones and to steal data you know, fr from those phones once they're infected. And this included uh, the uh, capability to do this to, uh, to iPhones as well. 
So, um, of course, a lot of people wondered at the time when the, the, the news about Pegasus kind of became public knowledge, um, you know, a lot of people wondered exactly how they're doing it. I don't know that we ever really got all the details, but uh, essentially the way that these things work in general is that um, they find a vulnerability and they discover a way to exploit it remotely. And ideally in such a way that um, there's no obvious indicator to the user that their device has been uh, compromised. You know, so why would Facebook need that kind of capability to, you know, to be able to to pull data from a, a user's iPhone without, uh, you, you know, and circumvent Apple's protection procedures is sort of what's implied here. Yeah, it's pretty suspicious. I, I hope we learn more about this. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it sounds kind of criminal. And maybe there's some, you know, people in law enforcement that should look into us. And, and, and I hope they're doing this. Um, but this is, this is a very serious issue. Again, as I said before, they've got so much data on users. What more do they want? Uh, are they looking for, you know, personal data, like sucking up everyone's contacts or uh, spying on their text messages? And, and that just sounds weird. Yeah, there's not a ton of details about this, but we will link to uh, the the article in the show notes as well. So you can can see a little bit more detail that is known so far. Um, but the reason that there's not a ton of additional detail is that um, they've only really talked about what's available in public court documents. Um, and so there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff and probably very in, you know, incriminating stuff that hasn't come to light publicly yet. And uh, so that's why we don't have all the details just yet. Okay. So a couple of vulnerabilities quickly. There's an iOS vulnerability that prevents VPNs from encrypting all traffic. And this is in iOS 13.3.1. I don't know if this was fixed. There was an iOS update just the other day. I don't know if this was fixed. Was it? Well, taking a look at the Apple page that says about the security content of iOS 13.4 and iPad OS 13.4, there's nothing in that uh, list of vulnerabilities that were patched that has anything to do with VPNs. So um, it does seem like this might still be an issue on iOS 13.4. I haven't confirmed that, but based on the fact that it, there's nothing specifically mentioned about that and what was fixed security wise, I'm guessing that this is probably still an issue. And this was reported on March 26th. We're linking to an article on Mac rumors. So it's not from this week. That's a little bit worrisome. Uh, in other vulnerabilities, Ars Technica is reporting a new attack on home routers that sends users to spoofed sites that push malware. It's using DNS hijacking and the article said this is the latest to capitalize on pandemic anxiety. Right. Yeah. So they, they say that what happened here is that uh, certain models of home and small office routers um, are being infected and then redirecting users to malware sites that are pretending to be COVID-19 informational resources. Um, so trying to trick them into installing malware that then does other bad things in their network, stealing passwords and and uh, uh, hijacking their their cryptocurrency if they're uh, somebody who mines cryptocurrency and so forth. So um, this is uh, yet another router vulnerability. We've talked about a number of these in the past, and um, these things uh, just don't seem to be going away because this is something that 
can in some cases be attacked remotely. Uh, your router is usually the device that sits between your computer and the public internet, right? And so um, if there is a remotely exploitable vulnerability in routers, um, that seems like uh, you know, a, a good target for a lot of the bad guys. They they want to infect a device that is going to affect all the network traffic on on any network. You know, be on the other side of that router on your home network usually. And um, so, if they can break into your router and get it to do some nasty and nefarious things, then uh, any computer, any phone, any other device on your network is going to have to go through that router to get out to the internet. And so if it's doing something to intercept your traffic uh, or redirect your traffic somewhere else, um, then that, that, that's a huge step beyond just infecting an individual device. So the thing to remember about this is make sure that you're using a current model of router and uh, if so, basically, if you haven't gotten a new router in this past five years, maybe, or maybe even more recently than that, um, you definitely want to make sure that you are at the very least checking to see if there are firmware updates available. And uh, so you'll need to log into your home router to do this, um, check for updates, and also take a look at the last date that a router update um, was installed, if you can find that out, or when the last version of your router firmware was released. Because if it's been more than, let's say, a year or 18 months, then you should probably assume that it's time to get a new router because it probably means that your router firmware is not being patched anymore, which means it may not be safe. Is it safe to assume that... So here, I get a router from my ISP. Is it safe to assume that a router provided by an ISP is safer? It's set to auto-update when firmware is available. Well, um you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily assume anything. You are in a little bit of a pickle if you have a router provided by an ISP, because often that means that uh, you either cannot bring your own router or that it's going to be a lot more complicated to try to use your own router with that ISP. Um, so it, it's, it's tough to say, I guess what I would try to do if you can, if you have the ability to log into that router and find out whether it's got the latest firmware, do try to do that. And if you have any concerns, you should definitely contact your internet service provider and, uh, and, you know, and ask them about it. And, you know, you're going to have a, a hard time because you're going to have to go through probably multiple layers of support because the front lines are really not going to have an answer to that question. But, um, but do try to find out if you have concerns that your ISP provided router may not be fully up to date. Yeah, while you were saying that, I was looking at mine, and I don't see any place in the normal configuration screens that says anything about an update. Um, it has system uptime, network uptime, Wi-Fi status, etc. Ah, here we go. Firmware updated, 17 March 2020. So oh, okay, good. it is getting updated often. And there is no um, button to click to, to update the firmware, but I think they do it like two in the morning or something. They check probably daily. Um, usually with ISP provided routers and, and modems for that matter, um, those are things that the internet service provider, because they're providing them to you, um, usually they will update those on a regular schedule. And yes, usually it'll be at off peak times if it requires a reboot. Um, yeah. Right. 
Okay, let's do the two-minute Zoom. You got to go through this really quickly. Um, I think we're going to do this every week now. We're going to have new Zoom things like we used to have Facebook. We'll have links to these four stories in the show notes. Uh, Brian Krebs on Krebs on Security has talked about a war-dialing tool that exposes Zoom's password problems. Um, very quickly, war-dialing is basically you're trying a whole bunch of different meeting numbers, in this case, to, to find the ones that respond. A lot of people aren't setting passwords. I think Zoom just changed their um, settings, so you have to have a password for meetings. I'm not sure. Yeah, I believe so. They they announced that they were going to make that change to enforce that change globally, um, and I think that was uh, within a few days of of this war dialing tool being released. Um, so. So by now, you should only be able to create a new Zoom meeting if you have a password. Um, and and basically, Zoom's excuse on this was, well, we required you know or encouraged certain groups to use a password, um, but it wasn't necessarily mandatory. Now we're making it mandatory for everybody just to prevent this kind of thing from happening. Okay. Washington Post, thousands of Zoom video calls have been exposed online, highlighting the privacy risks. This is somewhat related to the fact that they're not password protected, right? It looks like what happened here is that uh, when people are saving Zoom meetings a- as a video on their computer, um, a lot of people are just saving them using the default name. And so when they're uploading these videos then to YouTube or other video sharing sites, um, if they haven't changed the name of that video, it makes it a little bit easier for somebody who is looking for these uh, meetings to be able to find them uh, because they, they follow the same standard naming convention uh, that, you know, Zoom meetings always use. And uh, now video meetings are not recorded by default. Um, and, and this is not the kind of thing where Zoom is, you know, keeping video logs of all of your meetings on their server. It's not something like that. This is people specifically choosing to save a Zoom video and not renaming it and then uploading it somewhere where someone can guess the pattern and do, uh, do a search and try to find videos like this. So it does, it's not as bad as it sounds. Okay, move fast and roll your own crypto. A quick look at the confidentiality of Zoom meetings. I think the main thing to say here is, and you mentioned this before we started recording, don't invent your own cryptographic systems. I mean, people have been working on this for decades and they've got systems that work. And apparently Zoom kind of tried to create their own rather than use standard standard encryption that everyone trusts. This is a very common thing that software developers that have to implement some sort of security into their product, um, but don't necessarily know a, a lot about security. A lot of times they they try to implement things on their own, or they hear, "Oh yeah, AES two fifty six. That's that's a that's a good encryption standard, right?" And so what Zoom claimed to be doing was using AES two fifty six encryption. But it turned out what they were doing was something much worse than that. They were actually using a single AES-128, which um, when you're talking about these numbers, there's orders of magnitude difference. It's not just, you know, well, AES-256 is twice as good as 128. No, it's way, way, way better than that. Um, And so it turns out they were not really even using a good 
encryption standard after all. And uh, they may made a number of mistakes. And yes, the takeaway is if you have to design security into your product, and really almost every product should have security designed in, um, you need to make sure you're doing it properly. You're, you, uh, you get it vetted. Um, you're using trusted, uh, you know, if you're using like say open source uh, software uh, to implement this in your product, make sure that you're using software from a trusted source, not just, you know, some random person's GitHub page. Okay. Um, last is Bruce Schneier writing about security and privacy implications of Zoom. We won't talk about it, but he generally lays out all of the issues that we've been discussing in the past few weeks. He puts them into three broad buckets, as he said, bad privacy practices, bad security practices, and bad user configurations. Now, we can't always blame the user because they're not used to using this software, uh, the issue of people not thinking they needed to password protect their meetings. But this is part of the fact that Zoom is not explaining very well how people need to manage security and privacy. Um, link in the show notes. It, this is a good article because it sums up um, this whole Zoom saga. Uh, We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a very good friend of mine who got scammed over the phone. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code PODCAST19 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST19 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego. Devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, so I have a very good friend named Rob Griffiths, and I've known Rob for almost 20 years. He worked at Apple for a few years, and then he worked in finance. And when Mac OS X came out in 2001, he launched a website called Mac OS X Hints. Uh, it was extremely popular. Users could contribute hints and tips, and um, he would publish a bunch every day. Uh, I worked with him on the site quite a bit. He sold the site to Macworld, worked for Macworld for a long time, and now he's uh, um, in a, a two-person independent development company. So Rob is a very tech-savvy person. He speaks fluent HTML. He speaks fluent command line. Yet he got scammed. We're linking to an article, How I Lost Control of Our Bank Accounts to a Phone Scammer. The reason I wanted to talk about this is we talk about people getting scammed and phishing and how it's tricky. And I think the way, even the way we talk about it is, okay, if you get caught, it's because you just don't know enough to, to not get caught. And yet this is someone who knows everything. And he, in this article, he points out the five red flags that he missed. He 
He recounts the whole story of what happened, and still he got scammed. And and he's kind of he's the second to last person I would expect to get scammed. Josh, you're the last person I would expect. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I won't ever fall for something like this. But um, you know, you never know. And and the thing is that there, there's a lot of reasons why somebody who is tech savvy can still fall for, for scams like this from time to time. Um, and, and Rob, uh, gives a lot of specific things that he wished that he had picked up on that he, he realizes in retrospect, Oh, I missed this, or I should have thought about this at that moment. So the first one is that his bank called saying that there was a fraud issue. In my experience, banks don't call you when there's a fraud issue. In my case, they'll send you a text message They'll tell you to call this number, and if you are intelligent, you won't call the number in the text message. You'll go to your bank's website, find the number of the fraud department, or go through the main number and call them back. Now, I actually had a bank that I was with that called me from an Indian call center with a scratchy line and people with a very bad accent for a legitimate fraud issue on a credit card. This happened a little more than a year ago, and I changed banks because they would not accept incoming calls about this issue. Oh, yeah, no, that's not a good practice. I mean, if it, so if your bank is going to call you, and some banks may actually call you instead of sending a, a text message or something, um, but if they do call you, it's very important that they they must have a system in place where you can call them back. They should have on their website a phone number that you can call so that you can get you know directly to their fraud department. Um, Often it's on the back of your credit card as well. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's a great place to look as well. If you, if you don't necessarily know the web address of, of the company or you don't have access to the internet at the moment, you're getting that call. Yes, absolutely. Look on the back of your card uh, and that's that's the number to call back. Um, so that's that is concerning <laughs> if somebody calls you from from your bank and they say, oh, no, you can't call us back. Um, I would assume in that case that it's a scam or if the, you know, the other thing that they might do is they might even give you a number to call back. Um, but if you do a search for that number, you, you can't find it anywhere on the actual bank's website. And, uh, obviously that means that someone else is, you know, running a, a scam shop and they're trying to get you to call it back. Or it can mean that I should say, I would assume that it means that if you can't find that number on your actual bank's website. One of the things that he told me before he wrote this article is, well, the guy had a lot of information about me. He had my name. He told me the last four digits of my social security number. Um, and social security numbers can leak in, in data breaches. So it's not impossible. This was a very well-targeted scam. In fact, when we get to the end, he updated the article, and I'll say something about it when we get there. Um, they clearly knew enough about him to trick him. So the second red flag he talks about is that he got a number of texts that had different codes that he needed to log in uh, on the website. Basically, what he was doing was giving codes to the scammer to log in on his account on the website. Right. Yeah. Now, this is a very common, uh, commonly observed issue with two factor authentication, right? Um, the problem here is that, uh, you know, if you're talking about getting, uh, any kind of code, no matter what method it is, whether it's through a text message or some other means, the problem with two factor codes is that 
you can give a code to somebody else. And so a scammer can trick you into giving them your code and then they're logging in on your behalf. Um, so th- this is essentially a man in the middle attack and, and it may even be a very manual attack. So in this case, it looks like what, what happened here is that, um, the scammer was trying to log in to his account. And so they needed his two factor codes. And so, so the actual bank, I guess, sent him uh, a code to use and then he gave that to um, uh, to the phone representative so that they could get into the account. Right. And red flag three was when, as he was reading the code back to confirm it, the person asked him to slow down. And he should have realized then that the person was typing it out as he read it back and not just confirming that the code matched what he got by text message. Right, exactly. So th- this is um, uh, this is social engineering at its best, right? <laughs> or uh, a, a pretty good example of it anyway. Um, this is somebody who uh, has had a lot of practice. They know what to say um, that can convince somebody that uh, that oh, this is all on the up and up, right? That it's, it's 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 they have a way of phrasing things that it sounds legitimate. Okay, can you um, uh, read that back to me and and you know, make sure you tell me where the capitals are so that I can confirm that you've got the right code. And so that we're really talking to the right person. And what it really is, is this is a two factor code. And so, um, it's, it's, uh, not, not what the scammer says that that code is supposed to be for. So then the scammer um, says, uh, in order to convince him that this is real, he says, earlier, I gave you the last four digital security number, here's the full number. And Rob immediately thought, well, they must be legit because who else would have that? But how can you, con- how do you think that social security numbers are secure? I mean, we don't use them here for identification purposes and I never would because there's nothing secure about a social security number. Yeah, unfortunately, um, there's been lots of databases that have leaked that have contained social security numbers. And so um, I assume that if somebody wants to scam you, they can probably find out your whole social security number somewhere online. You know, they can probably, um, you know, find some dark corner of the internet or, or pay somebody some money and get a giant database that contains almost everybody's social security number in the United States. Um, sad, but, um, really it's, it's, it's true. I mean, there've been too many breaches and unfortunately a lot of times social security numbers are in those breaches. So you can't, assume that just because somebody has part of or all of your social security number that they are who they say they are because it could just mean that they found it through some nefarious means okay so the fifth red flag is that the scammer was talking about two separate transactions that were made in florida and he said well this wasn't me i'm not in florida but he said i was pretty sure he said alabama at the start of the call and didn't think to question it just seemed odd that the state had changed and that was red flag five The state changed, he said, and I noticed it, but ignored it. I should have hung up right then. But by that time, it was too late. So the scammer said, don't use online banking. It's going to be locked, and FedEx will have a new card for you in the morning. He tried to log in. The scammer had changed the password. And so the scammer got $500 because they use, his bank uses a system, I'm not familiar with this, where you can send money to anyone just using a phone number, but the limit is $500. So he didn't get scammed 
for more than that, it wasn't full access to his account. Uh, presumably, every time I know that here, every time I add a new payee to my account, I have to go through all sorts of two-factor authentication. But apparently, the person got in and was able to make one transfer for five hundred dollars. Yeah, this is uh, it, it is common, I guess, for for there to be limit limitations like this, and for this reason, because you don't want to have your entire you know, savings account cleared out uh, by some scammer. And so they often will have limitations on the amount that you can transfer without going through a much, you know, more secure process, maybe in person, um, you know, being able to to show uh, your identity to to a person in a bank or things like that. Um, so it's good that he only got scammed out of $500. Um, but clearly the attacker knew this. Uh, they knew this in advance. They were targeting him probably partly because they knew uh, about his procedures at his credit union. Um, and, uh, you know, this is something that scammers will typically do is once they have successfully pulled off this kind of attack against somebody, now they know the whole process. Now they know exactly what they need to do, what they need to ask or say to the person that they're trying to scam. And so it makes it much easier to continue to do the same thing with that same bank or with customers or users of that same bank or credit union. Um, so uh, it sounds like that's exactly what happened here is that uh, this scammer knew that credit union and knew their process and knew that there was even a $500 limit. And so they were able to very quickly and efficiently make it through all the stages of this attack. So Rob posted an update. Again, link in the show notes. You should really read this article. He posted an update a few days later um, because someone suggested that maybe the bank had a data breach. And he looked on the bank's website, the I lost my password form, and you have to enter your username, date of birth, and full social security number. And this is uh, information that the scammer had. Rob explained to me that his username is not something that he uses on any other site. It's a name plus the name of the bank plus additional characters. So it's not like he just uses Rob as username everywhere he goes. So the only way they could have gotten that is if somehow they had gotten into the data that the bank owns. Since they were talking to someone and they knew the username and social security number, it does seem very suspicious, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, unfortunately, you know, it's, it, it is possible that maybe his uh, credit union actually had a breach and um, he either maybe it was public knowledge, but he didn't happen to know about it. Or maybe this was actually even something where. Uh, it was not public knowledge, but um, you know maybe it was an inside job. Even I, th- there's a lot of possibilities here, um, but uh, but you know this is one of many examples of uh, scams where if you're not paying super close attention and thinking like an attacker, as we've talked about before, that's really really important. Um, tr- you should always be skeptical of any. Thing that any kind of call that comes in, any kind of text message you get, any kind of email you get that has anything to do with your finances, um, be on the alert. Really assume that it's malicious and, until you can really get um, some kind of really solid confirmation that it's legitimate. And and as you say, Kirk, that one of the most important things you can do here is to go to 
your actual bank's website, which you should have bookmarked, by the way. You shouldn't be Googling it, you know, or trying to type it into your browser bar because, you know, what if you mistype it? Or what if that text message that you got gives you a phone number that's supposedly from your bank or gives you a, a, a an address, a web link to click on that's supposedly from your bank, but it's actually going to a phishing site or to a fake, you know, uh, phone bank that is is taking calls just to scam people. I think um, if you ever do end up calling that sort of number, the giveaway that it's a scam will be that you don't have to wait on hold for 10 minutes with <laughs> cheesy music. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a fair if someone point. someone answers the phone right away, you know there's something wrong. <laughs> Yeah, well, and maybe the scammers uh, are even building stuff like that in. Oh, please wait, you know, and maybe they'll put you on hold for Your one minute. Your call is be- important. Yeah, be- before <laughs> connecting you with an agent or, you know, the yeah. scammer. Yeah. Just remember, once again, as I said earlier, this is someone who's really tech savvy. If it can happen to him, it can happen to anyone. So be careful. Stay safe. Um, until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>